Good morning, everyone, to those of you in the room and those of you joining us on, online. Um, I'm going to pre-warn you. Um, I got unexpectedly very emotional <laughs> over at our Eagle Hawk congregation this morning as I delivered this word. I had literally no idea it was going to happen. Um, so let's see what happens this time, shall we? So you ready for the ride with me? Let's see what God has got for us. Um, so the last few weeks, we have been delving into um, the first chapter of First Peter, a letter written by one of Jesus' very first disciples to a group of Gentile Christians, Gentile believers. So that meant that basically just meant that they hadn't come from an, uh, a Jewish background, and they're facing incredible hardship and suffering and persecution. Uh, and so um, Peter reminds them in this letter as he seeks to encourage them, he reminds them and therefore he reminds us as well that when we, be, when we put our trust in Jesus, we become new. You're a new you. I'm a new me uh, because of faith in Jesus. I mean, as we've unpacked the first chapter, we see that for all of us who accept Jesus' invitation to follow him, we are changed. We are hopeful and no matter what circumstances in life, we have hope. Uh, and also, we're not only hopeful, but we are holy. We're as followers of Jesus. We are set apart and we are made special. And as we look at the passage today, we see that all of this is possible because we are not only hopeful and holy, but we are his. We are given in Jesus a new identity. Now, identity is an interesting kind of a thing, isn't it really? I wonder if you've ever unexpectedly seen yourself in a new light. Maybe you've walked past a mirror or, you know, one of those really reflective kind of windows and kind of gone, oh, oh, okay, is that what I look like? Ever had that experience? Yeah, maybe just a few more lines around the face. Probably just me, not you. Um, have you ever heard your voice on a recording and gone, is that really what I sound like? I've had that so many times. You'd think I would be used to it by now, but no. Perhaps uh, you've walked into a workplace and you've been called boss for the first time. Or uh, maybe for you it's the first time you've been called mum or dad or something like that. Uh, we had some uh, very new parents uh, over at the Eagle Hawk campus today. I got, you've got that to look forward to. Um, or maybe you've just had a really major shift in your circumstances or in a relationship and suddenly you feel like your identity, who you are, the way that you see yourself or even the way that others see you has really changed and shifted. Uh, a couple of weeks ago on Anzac Day, Andy and I celebrated our 17th wedding anniversary. And I know, so special. Um, but I still remember the day after we got married, um, waking up and I, we had this little balcony and I went out to it and I was just spending some time with God. And all of a sudden I went, oh, in a good way, I'm Andy's wife. Like it, it suddenly hit me, I'm, I'm Andy's wife. I'm a wife. You know, I'd gone from being a single woman to a girlfriend, which was very exciting, uh, and then a fiancé, which was even more exciting, and then all of a sudden, I'm a wife. And you think, Trina, you're getting married, you did know you're going to be, yes, I knew I was going to become a wife, but I felt like the same person, but all of a sudden I had this sudden realisation that my identity had shifted and changed in a way that it never had before. Um, I was the same person, but I was forever changed. My whole life was now reorientated in a new and different way when Andy and I got married. 
had similar experiences when I became a mum. My life shifted and changed and my identity changed. And as we journey through the different seasons and roles in our lives, there will be times when our identity comes under scrutiny. And there are times when some of us may even experience what psychologists term as an identity crisis. And I'm going to get nice and technical. Are you ready for something technical? An identity crisis is technically defined as a period of uncertainty or confusion in a person's life. A phase that many people go through when they question or reassess who they are. This crisis occurs when a person's sense of identity becomes insecure and unstable. An identity crisis usually occurs when there's a change in a person's life. But the great news is an identity crisis can happen at any time. Are you excited? It can happen today if you want. You know, we make jokes, don't we, about people having an identity crisis, you know, like a midlife crisis, suddenly someone's buying a motorbike or a sports car or there's a dramatic new haircut or there's a tattoo, one of those things. We joke about it, but there's a serious side to having an identity crisis as well. And, and, and it's, um, it's a serious side because it's a crisis where we where we see ourselves and our place in the world and it's called into question. All of a sudden, things don't seem so stable or secure anymore. And there's lots of periods in life and in instances in life where this can happen. There's some kind of really key moments. Adolescence, most adolescents go through a period of time where they're questioning who they are and trying to find their fit and place in the world. Graduating from uni and moving into the workforce, marriage, um, parenthood, change of jobs, redundancy, a change in marital status. Empty nesting is probably a time where identity crisis can happen. Midlife, retirement, all these different, and so many other bits and pieces in between, all periods where we can have an identity crisis. And in our culture today, and as we heard from Steve McAlpine last week, in our culture we see increasingly that people's understanding of identity, what identity is, is shifting more and more, isn't it? As individuals now starting to choose their identity, and particularly in regards in our day and age to gender and sexuality. And identity is an incredibly serious topic because how we see ourselves, the way that we understand who we are, our identity, will impact every aspect of how we live our lives. And that's why Peter addresses this very issue in this letter, wanting us to have a firm foundation on which to know who we are and how we are to live as followers of Jesus. Because when it comes to our spiritual identity, Peter wants us to be absolutely confident and sure so that no matter what face, no matter what suffering, no matter what hardship comes, our faith will stand firm. Because just like the original recipients of Peter's letter, we too can face a spiritual identity crisis when the life around us or even the life within us seems insecure and unstable. It might be in the face of heartache or burnout or a diagnosis, of loss. It could be unanswered prayer or doubts or confusion or conflict or even just that empty sense in our hearts and minds of there must be something more to life than this. Perhaps it's a crisis that actually comes through suffering and hardship. 
And these sorts of crises have the potential to either strengthen our faith and deepen us and draw us deeper and closer to Jesus, or these, this kind of crisis has the potential to drive us further and further away from the hope and the holiness that we're called to as disciples of Jesus. And the root of it all is this absolute imperative that we have to understand not just what we have in Jesus, but who we are in Jesus. Why? Again, because who we are shapes what we do and how we live. It shapes how we respond to the good and the bad in life. Our understanding of ourselves, where we come from, the roles we play, our character, gifts, talents, our resources, our relationships, our family of origin, our career, our health, our history, our hopes for the future, and so much more, all contribute to the sense of who we are. And who we are is foundational. And Peter writes to these Gentile Christians to tell them and to tell us that we have the sort of security, significance, purpose, and belonging that will enable us to to so to able will enable us to stand through any suffering and hardship. And it's all wrapped up in the fact that as we put our trust in Jesus, we have a new identity. We become his. Peter grounds this teaching in the promise that all who accept Jesus' invitation to follow him don't just become aligned to a new way of thinking or living. It's rather that there's this new relationship. We become his. We enter into a relationship that completely reorientates and reshapes who we are and how we live. So would you delve into me with First uh, Peter? So if you want to open your Bibles or your device, um, we're going to look at First Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 4. And it'll be on the screens for you as well. So Peter writes, You are coming to Christ who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honour. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scriptures say, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honour, and anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Yes, you who trust him recognise the honour God has given him. But for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And he is the stone that makes people stumble and the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word. And so they meet the fate that was planned for them. I love what Peter is doing here because first and foremost, he's relaying the foundations of the, for the Gentiles' new identity and therefore our identity as well by firmly placing the Gentiles in the context of the Old Testament promises and prophecies. And he's actually embedding some of those promises and some of those prophecies in this part of his letter. And these promises and prophecies have been made to Israel, God's chosen people, his holy nation. They were given to, the, uh, to Israel, but they hadn't, these promises hadn't been given to the Gentiles. But because of their faith in Jesus, and um, because of their faith in Jesus, because they were his, the Gentiles were now part of this long history and God's plan for humanity. And it's the same for you, and it's the same for me. As we embrace the invitation of Jesus, 
We not only embrace God's story through history, but we actually become part of that story. Secondly, Peter talks about Jesus being our cornerstone. And in ancient buildings and even in more, on, in more modern buildings, the cornerstone was traditionally the first stone laid for structure. And this is important. All the other stones were laid in reference to the cornerstone. A cornerstone marked the geographical location by orientating the building in a specific direction. And when we choose to put our faith in Jesus, he is the new foundation of our lives. Our lives are to be built around him, in reference to him, aligned with him, orientated by him and towards him. And with Jesus as our cornerstone, we have this security and this structure. There's this firm foundations to our lives. We're no longer living on shifting sands. And the complexities, the struggles, the joys, the hopes, the disappointments of life. And yes, even the suffering. Through all of that, we have a firm foundation because we are his and he is our cornerstone. In the Old Testament, um, the worship and the lives of Israel were bound to and orientated towards the temple in Jerusalem. That was what they saw as the dwelling place of God. But our lives are not bound and not orientated to a place. Our lives are orientated to and bound to a person, to Jesus. We are his it doesn't matter where we are or what happens to us. Our foundation is secure. We know where to turn because we have a living relationship with a living God who is always with us. And unlike a physical temple, it can't be torn down and destroyed. And as we're orientated towards Jesus and we're given new life in him, and just as Jesus is the living cornerstone, we are living stones, Peter says, being built into a living, breathing temple, a place where God dwells. And we're not bound by a place. We're not geographically set in stone, in concrete, in one area. We're a temple that moves and lives among in our world, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighbourhood, in the shops that we enter into. Uh, wherever we go, we take the presence of Jesus with us. And Peter points out, though, in verse 8, I just want to reflect on this briefly, um, that Jesus is a stumbling block for many. Jesus' invitation for us to follow him to live his way is one that we can choose to accept or reject. And if you were here last week, you would have heard Steve McAlpine talk about how we, we all worship something or someone, but we have to choose who or what it is that we'll worship. And the choice before us is whether we will worship Jesus or something else. And Jesus is a stumbling block. And again, as we've just like last week been immersed in kind of and thinking about our culture today, why is Jesus such a stumbling block? And there's, I think there's lots of reasons, but I think one of the key things that it comes back to is in John 4, 16, Jesus categorically states, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. There is no other way to relationship with the God who created us except through Jesus. And if we accept that invitation of Jesus, our lives need to be orientated in a whole new direction. Or as Peter puts it here, we need to obey God's word. Many of us, well, many people, maybe even some of us in this room, really like the idea of spirituality, uh, even faith, uh, you know, living a spiritual life. 
as long as it's a spirituality and a faith that we can mould into our own design. But Jesus is a stumbling block because his way, being his people, means we must surrender to him and to be formed into his image. It means that we must take seriously the way Jesus lived, his teaching and commands, and that our response to him needs to be one of loving obedience. To obey Jesus, to live his way, means we need to love one another, to forgive even our enemies. It means we're to live simply and generously, to be honest and peaceful, to put others first. It means that we give our whole lives to Jesus and follow him and love him with our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole strength and our soul. Someone said to me recently, it's not an easy road, but it's a good road. It's a good road. And there is life, real life, and joy and love in following Jesus and obeying him. And as we live with Jesus as our cornerstone, as we live at our lives as his, we find that our identity and purpose is completely reshaped. And Peter goes on to explain that to us in verses 9 and 10. He says, but you are not like that, like the people who have rejected Jesus. For you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people. Now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. We are chosen. If you're here today and you've put your faith in Jesus, you are chosen. I'm chosen. You are chosen. We are a holy priesthood. We are God's very own possession. We were once walking in spiritual darkness and now we have the light that only Jesus can bring and fill us with and surround us with. We once had no identity and now we have an identity. And I love how the very deepest longings of us as humanity are met here in Jesus, to have security and certainty in our lives, to have significance and purpose, to belong and to be loved. We have security and certainty because as, as um, Peter's already unpacked for us, Jesus is our foundation that will never be shaken and will never be moved and can never be destroyed. But we know that we're loved because we're chosen. Um, you may never have been the first one picked for a sporting team. <laughs> you may never have been asked to sing lead vocals in a worship team. Uh, you may never have been given a promotion at work. You may never have won an academic prize at school or won a beauty contest. A number of you here could have won a beauty contest, but not all of us could win a beauty contest. But you are chosen by the creator of the universe. Loved treasured, precious. You may never win an earthly prize, but what Peter is saying here is you and I are chosen by the creator of the universe. And no matter what our background, no matter what our family of origin or our marital status, our job, our wealth or our lack of it, 
If you have put your faith in Jesus, you can rest assured, I can rest assured that we have been chosen. Chosen by a faithful, loving, compassionate God who will not unchoose us. Maybe you've been in a, in a human relationship where you felt chosen and then you were unchosen. God does not choose like that. He loves with a faithful, eternal love. If he has chosen you, he will not unchoose you. And I love that this is an act of God's will. God's not passive in his love towards us. He doesn't sit back and leave us to our own devices, hoping we'll somehow sort out how to connect with him. Now, God has acted all throughout history and specifically through the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus to show us the way to be in relationship with him. God is not passive. He constantly, throughout history and in our own lives today, actively expresses his love and his goodness towards us. So we're chosen, but we're also significant with an incredible purpose because we are a royal priesthood. I wonder how royal you consider yourself today. Anyone else watch the coronation last night? Am I the only one? Please tell me there's some other. Okay, good, 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 good. This theme of priesthood runs throughout the whole Bible. They were to offer sacrifices to teach, to instruct the people. Sorry, they were to teach and instruct the people to know and follow God's covenant commands. They led the worship and the celebrations and the feasts and the festivals. They cared for the temple, and they communicated the blessing and the love of God to the people. And the priests were mediators between God and the people. They were the link between a holy God and an unholy and often very rebellious nation. And importantly, the priests were the only ones who had access to God. They were the only ones who could enter God's presence. But this is the amazing news that we have in Jesus, that through him, for all of us who follow him, who are his, we're now able to enter freely into God's presence. What was once a privilege reserved for a very, very small number of select people is now a blessing and a way of life for every person who accepts the invitation of Jesus to follow him. And it seems fitting to be talking about this, about royal priests today on the back of yesterday's coronation of King Charles. All the pomp and the ceremony to invest an earthly king with traditions that go back centuries. What I found fascinating last night um, is as the... Uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury prayed over the oil that uh, Charles was anointed with. And the oil, I heard a, um, an interview with the, the Archbishop before the whole ceremony. The oil is, represents the, um, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And that the only part of the whole ceremony that is kept away from the eyes of everyone else is when Charles is anointed with this oil. Because as the, as the Archbishop said, it is supposed to be a moment that is private between Charles and his God. But you know the, some of the words that the Archbishop prayed over the oil before he anointed Charles? You are God's chosen people, a royal priesthood, God's very own possession. These very words that we have just read are these words that were prayed over this oil that was then used to anoint an earthly king last night. But as much as yesterday's coronation was impressive, we are royal priests. Jesus gives us this role on earth to be his mediators between a holy God and a broken and hurting world. 
We're not anointed with oil. We're anointed with the Holy Spirit, with Jesus' very presence. We are filled up with him. We are empowered by him to live in this world, to help others to connect with a God who loves them, but who they do not know. Thanks, Mike. The Old Testament examples of the priest shows us how they bridge the gap between a holy God and an often rebellious and complaining nation. How they communicated God's goodness and blessings as well as what it means to live in relationship with him. And this too is what we're called to do. As I've considered these verses as I've been preparing for today, these two words, royal priests or royal priesthood, have so deeply impacted me. I have a role to play. And you have a role to play. As we think back about what Steve shared with us last week about the culture and the world that we live in, each of us who follow Jesus as living stones, as royal priests, we provide a connection to God. As Peter says, we are here to show the world around us the goodness of God. As royal priests, we have the responsibility to bridge the gap for people, to pray for those who are far off from God, to extend this to them the same mercy that God has extended to us to show others the way to follow Jesus, to be his disciple, and to discover the love, the forgiveness, and the goodness that can only be found in him. To show others what it is like to live in the presence of God and to invite them into that same presence themselves. So we're chosen, we're royal priests, and we belong. We belong to Jesus. We are his holy nation, his treasured possession. We have this new identity in being people who belong to the creator of the universe, who loved us even before we loved him. And we belong to each other. We belong with each other. Jesus has given us each other so that we can love him together and we can build each other up and encourage each other. And particularly in those times where there is hardship and suffering, that we bear with one another and we encourage and we love and support each other. We're chosen, we're a royal priesthood, and we belong to Jesus. We belong to Jesus. And this is the heart of today's message. We are his. Our identity is in him. And ultimately, we can know who we are because we know whose we are. I don't know who ever said that first, but I'm sure I heard it somewhere. And it really struck me as I thought about these words today. We can know who we are because we know whose we are. We are his. But here is the challenge. If this is true, if we are really his, it has to make a difference in how we see ourselves and how we live our lives. As I mentioned um, a couple of weeks ago, Andy and I celebrated our 17th wedding anniversary. And that on that day when we got married, um, we belonged to each other. I became his and he became mine. I just want you to picture for a moment what my marriage might look like today if at the end of the service we had walked out the church, shook hands, and he went back off to his pretty ordinary shared bachelor pad house 
And uh, it was pretty ordinary. Um, he's not here today, but he would tell you that. Um, and I went back to my place. So we're married. I belong to him, he belongs to me, but he's living there and I'm living there. We don't eat together, we don't go on holidays together, we don't make financial decisions together. Basically, I'm married, but I'm living my life as a single woman still. I wonder what my marriage, in inverted commas, would look like. Or maybe it's not quite that dramatic. Maybe when we got married, we did go on a honeymoon, we came back, we set up a home together, but we don't really eat together. I have a great day and I come home, but I don't tell Andy about it. I ring a friend. I'm going through something really, really difficult. I don't talk to Andy about it. I catch up with some girlfriends. We belong to each other, but we're actually not really sharing life together. In fact, there's some other person I like the look of, so maybe I'll just go on a date with them. It would be madness. It would be madness. It would ruin my marriage if I was to live in my married life like a single woman. It doesn't make sense, does it? But here is the hard and confronting question. How often do we approach our relationship with Jesus the same way? How often do we say that we're following Jesus, that we are his, but we fail to reorientate our lives to be centred on him and surrendered to him? We may say that we love Jesus, that we belong to him, that we are his. But what if the way that we live doesn't match this new identity that we have in him as followers of Jesus? Because it would be like following the example of Old Testament Israel who knew they were God's chosen people, who cared for by a royal priesthood, but chose again and again and again to worship idols things other than God, and to rebel against the life that God offered them. And to be honest, these are questions that I find myself, I find myself asking myself. Even recently, when I think about the ways in which I structure and I order my days, the ways that I spend my time, my money, my resources, the way that I do relationship. There are times when I'm faced with the reality that who I say I am as a follower of Jesus doesn't always match up the way that I want it to. There are times that I can say that I'm his, Sometimes my life doesn't actually really reflect that. I don't know if that resonates with you at all this morning. But when I think about the kind of people that we are called to be as his, to be loving, forgiving, generous, merciful, kind, joyful, patient, hopeful and holy, 
I wonder how well your life is being lived out in your identity to Jesus. Because I believe his heart for us today is that our lives would be so much more completely orientated on him. That we would know that our foundation is absolutely sure and secure. And that no matter what happens, we will know that we are his. And I am so grateful (laughs) that even in the moments and the seasons of my life where I feel like I fall short, I always have a loving saviour who embraces me. And that for every single one of us in this room, maybe today your relationship with Jesus is just so strong. You feel so deeply connected with him. But if you're here this morning and you're kind of, there's something not quite right. There's some things I need to get right. There's some shifts and changes that I need to make. We are so, so blessed, so privileged to have a God who opens his arms to us and says, come home. Come home. It's okay. It's okay. Come home. So how do we respond today? Firstly, I think this passage is such an incredible encouragement to all of us. But particularly today, I believe there are some of you who need to know right in the depth of your being that you are his. Even in the midst of the suffering you might be going through, the doubt, the confusion, the hardship... Jesus is saying to you today, he has got you. He has got you. He has got you. He has got you in the palm of his hand and he will not let you go. He is a sure foundation. You can be assured that he will not shift and change on you. That whatever it is that you are facing, he has got you. You are his and nothing can change that. He wants you to be encouraged this morning. You belong to him and you can trust him. Secondly, as a royal priest, I wonder if you've ever thought of yourself as a royal priest. I want to encourage you, what is Jesus calling you to do in your own life, in your own situation, whether it's a relationship that you're in, a person that you know, or a situation you're in, how can you be a mediator? between a holy God and a broken world or a broken situation or a broken person. There might even be someone specifically or a situation specifically that Jesus is bringing to mind for you right now. But I believe that what he was wanting to say to many of us today is how can we intentionally bring his presence, his mercy, his goodness into those situations in our lives? And thirdly, And perhaps the toughest challenge for some of us today, I invite you to ask this same question that I've been asking of myself. Am I truly living my identity, am I truly living my life in the identity I have as a follower of Jesus? Am I actually living as someone who is his? How closely orientated are you to Jesus, the cornerstone? What change or changes might you need to make 
to reorientate, to re to surrender your life more completely to the life, the joy, the hopefulness, the holiness that Jesus is calling us to in the midst of this broken and damaged world. Would you stand with me today? As the worship team come... I just want to spend just a moment. I just want you to give you a moment just to stand before God and just to consider some of those questions just in silence, just for a moment. So would you just close your eyes? If you're um, with us online, I invite you to to just close your eyes and, and settle wherever you are. And let's just take a moment um, and allow the Spirit of God to speak to us. Lord, I thank you that you give us sacred moments. Sacred moments like this or where we can just still our hearts and our minds before you and, and give you room to speak. And Lord, for those here today who just need that reassurance, Lord, that they are yours, that, that you are with them and that you are a firm foundation. Lord, I pray, even now by your Spirit, you would bring that sense of peace, of comfort, of assurance that you are with them and that you hold them. Lord, as we think of the world that we live in and Lord our world is is our family our home our workplaces our schools our neighborhoods it's the people we rub shoulders with every day Lord would you help us to bring your presence your love your goodness your mercy your light into those dark places we thank you for the privilege and the honor that it is to be people who can dwell in your presence to live in your goodness. Lord, I thank you that you said that you are the light of the world, but you also said that we, we are the light of the world, that we get to be your presence in the midst of darkness. And so, Lord, I pray particularly for those in this room this morning and online who are walking back into dark situations this week. Lord, would you give them such a strong sense of your anointing and your presence. Lord, would you help them to bring your peace and your light and your mercy into whatever situation they face this week. And Lord, for every one of us in this room who calls you Lord this morning, as our cornerstone, would you help us, Lord, to fix our eyes on you, to reorientate our lives so completely towards you, It might be big changes 
It might be little changes, but whatever it is, Lord, would you help us to step out in obedience, knowing that you love us, you have called us, you have chosen us, and that you are with us in everything. And Lord, I thank you this morning that we don't walk this journey alone. Lord, I thank you that you love us together, that you have brought us together, that we encourage and support um, one another. We cheer each other on in this journey of following you, of trusting you and of living life for you. And so, Lord, as we close today, as we step into this time of worship, Lord, I just want to pray these words of Peter um, over us again that we have read. But you are the ones chosen by God chosen for the high calling of priestly work, chosen to be a holy people, God's instruments to do his work and to speak out for him, to tell others of the night and day difference he made for you, from nothing to something, from rejected to accepted.